Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This morning we have a special guest with us who was here at the beginning of the summer, a missionary we most of us know pretty well because he's been here many times, Jim Myers. And for those of you who don't know him, Jim has been serving as a missionary in Kiev, Ukraine since, what, 96? And before that, he was in Belarus. He has a tremendous ministry there. Each year I go over there and teach uh, to the uh, Bible College Seminary there as well as to uh, the congregation. Jim was here at the beginning of the summer, and I asked him just to give us a brief report now that he's back at the end of the summer, he'll be leaving on Tuesday to return to Kiev to give us a brief report status on two or three things before I come and teach the Word. So, Jim? It has been a very interesting time in the U.S. this summer. Uh, we have visited... Uh, some 24 churches in 16 different states, so we have been uh, moving around. We see some things that are very encouraging. We see other things that uh, are not so encouraging. We have seen in some places the proliferation of churches. Some churches have become mega churches uh, in different cities where we have gone. And we also saw along the way as we were traveling a lot of storefront churches that have popped up. And uh, many people would think, well, this is really good. We're seeing the proliferation of churches or the growth of churches. But the fact that something is big doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy. And we have seen a lot of churches that are not very healthy. And also we have seen in a lot of churches, including Bible churches, churches that in years past were strong teaching churches, that they have really dumbed down the teaching. Some of the churches that would have Bible classes uh, three, four times during a week, now the church only meets once a week on Sundays, and they've shut down the other things. Uh, in other cases, the teaching has become very superficial. In some of the churches, the teaching has virtually disappeared. And uh, we went to one church that used to be a really fine Bible teaching church, and <clears throat> the former pastor has gone from there. The pastor they have now just gives platitudes. It's like chicken soup for the soul, and that's all he's giving to his people. But they love it because it makes them feel so good. And he told this story, and people in the congregation were just saying, oh, isn't oh. And uh, it's, uh, it's very sad to see this. Uh, in other churches, the uh, teaching has really be become so slight, uh, and they uh, can't sit and listen to a really good Bible lesson anymore. Uh, but I must say there are other churches where I was very encouraged, young men coming up in the ministry where they are teaching sound doctrine and where they are committed to teaching truth. And so uh, we see a few who are coming along and uh, standing firm with regard to teaching the Word of God, but we are seeing others that are really in decline. And as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And all across this country, we've seen many people are saying, oh, we can't believe what's happening in this nation, and it's happening so fast. But I submit it's not happening so fast. We're just getting closer to the bottom, and it appears to be rushing at us much closer, uh, much faster. And uh, this has been coming on, but we haven't heeded the warnings, and we've just rather ignored what has been going on. But we have seen this decline in attitude toward Christian principles, Christian teaching, and then the application of the Word of God to experience. And I believe that even in many of our churches today, uh, 
strong people who believe in the Word of God, who are doctrinally oriented, have really left behind the application of many of the doctrinal principles in their own personal spiritual life. Those of you who heard me uh, several weeks ago when I spoke, I related an anecdote how I uh, had given a little survey to this group of uh, people I was teaching one Saturday, and I gave them a little test just about Bible knowledge. This is not deep theology, but just a little test. And some of you actually confessed to me after the class, well, I really couldn't pass the test. And as I told this anecdote uh, in many churches this summer, uh, I, I had many people say, well, we don't know this. One of the questions on the test was, name the writers of the four Gospels. Not everyone can do this. And I asked people to list the 27 books of the New Testament in order. In a Bible church, after I spoke, the pastor came up and he said, I couldn't do this. He said, there were three. I just couldn't think of them. I have a little problem with this. And I asked one pastor uh, about his reading of Scripture as I was talking. I think it's important that we keep on reading the Scripture day by day, that it just refreshes our soul and that we continue to remind ourselves through the reading of Scripture the marvelous plan of God and the provision of God and the working of God. And I, I think people ought to be reading every day. And you'll recall I mentioned if you read just three chapters a day in your Bible, just three chapters, in a year you'll read the Bible all the way through. So that's not a whole lot of reading. So I was talking to one pastor about this, and I said, well, you know, what have you been reading lately? And he said, well, he said, honestly, he said, I've been teaching the book of Hebrews for the past three years. I'm up to chapter three now. And he said, quite honestly, he said, except for looking up cross-references, I haven't read anything but Hebrews. This is a serious problem. You see, he's simply not spending that time in the Word. I want to encourage you, as I did before, if you haven't gotten started reading the Bible, I, I think you ought to do that. Find some kind of a, a plan and stick to it and just start reading the Bible every day. I think it would make a big difference in your life. And as far as Scripture memory goes, I encourage you to memorize one verse a week. And next year, if I come back in June, you'll know 50 verses. Okay? So when I come back next, next year, will you stand up and recite 50 verses? You can do a verse a week. I know you can. Um, and if you're not going to start now, when are you going to start? Okay? Uh, I would encourage you to do that because I think it will make a difference. And I believe that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that many of the things that we see happening in America today are really the result of the fact that Christians, they don't care anymore about their personal spiritual life. They really don't. Many people be in church this day, but it's not going to have much impact in how they live, how they think. And therefore, we are not being salt and light in this nation. And I think that we need to be that. And I believe that we can be that and we must be that if we are to have any hope at all. So uh, I want to encourage you. This is uh, a church that's a light shining in the darkness. There are very few churches like this that are left around this nation and so I'm, I'm thankful that you're here and that you are supportive of what's happening here. But I think you need to be encouraging others, too. Keep on encouraging others with regard to their spiritual lives and what they are doing about worship and what they are doing about studying the Word of God so that we, as believers, can actually impact the course of this nation. Uh, those of you who have been praying about our visa situation, thank you. Uh, the latest word that we have, uh, we still have conflicting reports. I received a letter from the American Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, and they continue to say we have a problem. But my secretary wrote and said that uh, we can return once we enter the country, and we know that we can do that. Uh, we can register in Ukraine, and we'll be able to stay there for a year without any problem. And that there... 
uh, is a missionary couple, friends of ours, who just got registered in June. And I wrote to him and asked what his situation was, and he said, we don't have a problem. So um, we'll see. And we're, we're going to be, we're leaving Tuesday. We'll get there on Wednesday, and we anticipate we're not going to have a problem. But if you'll continue to pray for the next few days, we would appreciate that. And thank you so much for uh, your encouragement to us, your prayers for us, uh, your support. We are grateful. And so we're going to go back, and uh, we're going to keep on keeping on so long as the Lord gives us grace to do that. So I want to say thank you uh, for what you do uh, for us and what you're doing for America. God bless. Thank you, Jim, and we're uh, always encouraged when you're here and you get to teach the Word, encourage us. Before we get into the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just thank Him for all that He's provided for us and pray for His guidance as we study His Word today. Father, we're thankful that we can come to You, that history is Your plan, the outworking of Your purposes in uh, the human race. We're thankful that we have absolute truth to go to, for it is the bedrock of our souls. And it is your word that encourages, strengthens, refreshes, and it is your word that also reminds us that we need to change the way we think so that we think the way you think. We need to repent. We need to think biblically and not like the world around us. Father, we're thankful for Jim and Phyllis. We're thankful for their ministry. We're thankful for those in Kiev who are carrying the ball in that ministry, for all of those, Nina and Oksana, for the two victors who are pastoring the church, for so many others who uh, are, are operating there in so many different ways. We're just thankful for them, for the pastors from the United States that go over there to teach consistently and for the impact that that is having through the lives of so many of the graduates who are spread out around Ukraine and even a few outside of Ukraine. And we continue to uh, pray for them, pray for Jim's, uh, the, the whole situation with the visa, that that will all be cleared up as they go back. And as we study your word, we pray that we might be focused upon the exclusive nature of your word that you have told us how to think. And there aren't a lot of options within that framework and that uh, we need to understand the foundations from the beginning in Genesis all the way through in terms of your plan and policy, but also we need to understand that that there is a radical disjunction between what you say in your word and what is accepted as a common, uh, common truth in the world around us in which we've too often been um, and by which we've been too often influenced ourselves. We pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the problems in our own thinking, that we may think in a way that reflects your will and honors you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, and we continue our study of Elijah. We have been going through Elijah for some time now, and we are in 1 Kings chapter uh, 18 at the end of this great contest that occurred on the top of Mount Carmel in the uh, northeast of Israel, just to the southwest of the Jezreel Valley, one of the most remarkable events that occurred in all of the Old Testament. We looked at this last time, and we went through the entire event where uh, Elijah called out the false prophets of Baal, 400 and uh, 50 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah, which were the uh, goddesses, goddess consort of Baal, and called them out, as it were, for a duel. Their religious belief, their worldview against uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the circumstances of that confrontation aren't that different from the circumstances that we face in our world around us. Israel was a nation, the northern kingdom now, was a nation that had a history that was grounded in God's revelation to them. They had a tremendous history of truth. They had a tremendous past of great glory, freedom, prosperity under David and Solomon, but once 
Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became the king. We saw that there was uh, arrogance in the heart and soul of of uh, Rehoboam, and so he followed the foolish advice of his younger advisors, increased the taxation, which was already onerous upon the people, which led uh, to a tax revolt. Now, that tax revolt actually was the will of God because he was bringing discipline upon that nation because of their uh, paganism that had been that had come in through uh, through Solomon, and so the people had approved of that, and they were beginning to uh, synthesize the worship of Yahweh, the one and only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with these false religions. They would confuse them. They would uh, say that. Uh, their God was Yahweh, but then they would uh, ascribe to him the works of uh, these other false gods. And when Jeroboam established the northern kingdom, he set up two uh, competing worship uh, areas, one in the northern area near the area of Dan and one in the south at Bethel where he built, the, had constructed these golden calves. And he said this was the God that brought them out of out of Egypt, and so he's re- he's into historical uh, revisionism, and what drives historical revisionism is what economics? No, biology? No, sociology? No, it's always religion. See, we live in a world that's bought into this lie that there is such a wall of separation between God and the st- and the state, the church and the state, religion and public life that most of us have don't realize how deeply we've been impacted by that, and we never think in terms of that the real causation for every single problem in your personal life and every single problem in the life of this nation goes back to a spiritual problem related to uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we are divorced from that truth, the truth that's embedded in Scripture, then the ultimate result is always calamity. And so God had brought judgment upon the northern kingdom as he had outlined in Leviticus 26 that he would, and that included that he would bring drought and famine on the nation. Elijah had announced that at the beginning of chapter 17. It had not rained in three and a half years so that the fields were parched, the ground was rock hard because there was no moisture there, the animals uh, were dying, the price of food had gone up because it had to be brought from outside of Israel so that there was unemployment that had uh, increased uh, many fold. There was uh, the cost of goods had increased and the people were hurting, but they had bought into, they had uh, psychologically subsidized the false religious system that had been brought in by uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And so they, they, they supported that, and many of them had lost the ability to think critically, to think about what they thought and how they thought about it, where they got these ideas of truth. And so they had synthesized these religious systems so that they would talk about Baal and say that's the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the, their worship of God, which and they just confused all these things together. That's something we call syncretism. We see great examples of this. I call it smorgasbord theology or smorgasbord religion, where you just have all this uh, panorama of ideas, and you say, well, I like this one over here, and I like this one over here, and I like that one over there, and I'm just going to put those together and sort of generate my own view of God and morals and religion, and it doesn't matter what the facts are, because it, we don't really have to have rational or logical consistency. You know, that really dominated Western civilization the last 200 years, and what did that bring us? Well, it brought us global warming, and it brought us uh, the threat of nuclear war, and it hasn't really improved the situation of famines in, in Africa, or we still have problems with race relations, and governments aren't all that much better. So what good is all this reason and logic done? Obviously, that can't be the path to any sort of solution. Let's just uh, forget reason and logic as having value. Let's just do with whatever we think works, no matter how irrational it may be. Now, that's pretty hard to talk to people who believe that. 
because any time you or I tend to talk to them, we're coming from a position that reason, under the authority of God, has value and significance. And they reject our methodology from the get-go, and they just say, well, that's just fine for you. Whatever works for you, fine. That's your smorgasbord theology. I've got mine. And you can't even get to first base because you're playing baseball and they're playing football. And until you can figure out how to somehow get them into the baseball game, you're lost. That's where apologetics comes into play. Apologetics it has to do with thinking in such a way as to be able to integrate the doctrines of Scripture so that the Bible is presented, and Bible doctrine is presented as a unified fortress that destroys the all the slings and arrows and thoughts of human viewpoint pagan thinking. The trouble is most Christians think that the way to really convert unbelievers is We've got to, instead of getting them to come over to our baseball stadium, we've got to go to their football stadium. And as soon as you think that, you've already lost the whole discussion because you've, you've validated their starting point, which has no validity. And their starting point is reason. But here I go again getting awfully technical and deep, and, and we just need some pious platitudes. Right, Jim? Well, unfortunately, if we're going to do what the Bible says to do in Romans 12, 2, that we're to exchange the thinking in our soul for the thinking of the Word, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we have to think, and we have to think about our thinking. And uh, most people don't like to think. That's why they don't come to churches like this too often. They would rather go someplace where they can sit and just be entertained by various musicians, and then they can have a nice little uh, prosperity, feel-good uh, message that is designed just to make them feel good about uh, all of their false thinking. And so there's always this conflict that we have in history, and we just see this great example of it in with Elijah, the conflict between the truth of God and the truth of man, and the conflict between Elijah and the priests of Baal on the one hand, which ultimately just goes back to the same old battle that we've had since the serpent in the garden, and that is the truth of the creator versus the truth of the creature. Creator versus, are we going to worship the creator or are we going to worship the creation? And scripture says that that is always the trend. That was the trend in Israel in the ancient world. They had succumbed to nature worship. They had succumbed to the worship of, of the, uh, gods of fertility. That was their path to prosperity. Uh, fertility in an agricultural environment is extremely important. So they're worshiping Baal. Now, here I have a little picture of uh, one of the idols of Baal. The little statues that we have recovered, his right hand is raised. Originally, there would have been a lightning bolt in that arm because he was the god, the storm god, the god of rain, the god of thunder, the god of lightning. Uh, he was the god who provided food. And this is what is so remarkable about uh, all of Elijah's miracles is every single one of these miracles that we see in his life is designed to show that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, trumps uh, the God Baal every single time. And every one of these different uh, miracles is designed to show that Baal is impotent. And so at the end of chapter 17, when he, go, when he went to Zarephath, and he's with the widow in Zarephath, and remember she just had a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil. Well, Baal was supposed to supply that, and she, he's not supplying anything. But Elijah comes along in enemy territory. Zarephath was in the territory of the Phoenicians, and this is in uh, Baal's uh, home stadium. And he can't do anything, but it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that provides the food. And so this has prepared Elijah for the big confrontation. Now, I have a couple of quotes up here. The first one is from the Rashamra text. These were some ancient texts found at, where we have a lot of information from that time. One of the poems says, he, referring to Baal, he will give abundance of rain, Abundance of moisture with snow, 
He will utter his voice in the clouds with his flashings and lightnings upon the earth. In the carrot text we read, For Baal's reign on the earth and the reign of the Most High on the fields. Notice they use the term Most High, which is a term used of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See the syncretism. It's easy. Oh, well, you see, they worship God. They must be Christians. They use God words. They said something about the Bible. Uh, that means, must mean they're, they're, they're okay. See, that's how most silly, superficial, simpering, sentimental Christians are today, is they think if somebody just uses the right code words, then that must mean that they're okay and they're biblical. Uh, they're not, but people get fooled. So Baal's reign on the earth and the reign of the Most High on the fields. Pleasant is Baal's reign on the earth and on the field, the reign of the Most High. And so Baal's been pretty impotent for the last three and a half years, and everything has become dry. And so uh, Elijah is going to have a contest, as we saw last time, up on the Carmel Ridge. That's it on the distance. He wants everybody to be able to see exactly what is going to happen, what is going to transpire. There's a little different uh, uh, vantage point showing the Carmel Ridge. And he gathered all the people together, and he challenged them. And he said to them in 1821, how long will you falter? Literally in the, in the Hebrew, it means jump back, uh, jump back and forth, hop back and forth. I think uh, the Spanish translation got it pretty close, and a, a recent uh, Catholic translation has them, how long are you going to do this little hopping? That's what it says in the Hebrew. It's a play on words because a few verses later the priests of Baal are going to be hopping around, dancing to try to see if they can uh, get Baal to come out of the, uh, maybe he went to the outhouse. Literally in the Hebrew, just so you know that, that, uh, that the Hebrew is, is very plain, what Elijah says to them is scream a little louder, jump a little higher, perhaps he's defecating somewhere. I cleaned that up for most of you, but... That's that's what he says. This is the sanctified use of language by the Holy Spirit. And after the old day goes by and and uh, nothing happened, and Elijah prayed a simple prayer, as we saw last time, and God uh, sends down lightning uh, that uh, immediately consumes everything that was on the altar, the altar, the animal, the bull on the altar, the water that was in the trough, everything is just just vaporized. And this is the beginning of the change that takes place. Now, this was no surprise to, to Elijah. He understands the background. He's not just coming up with this off the cuff. The various passages in Scripture, various events that had occurred in the past where God had sent fire from heaven. First Chronicles 21:26 tells of God sending fire from heaven on an altar that David uh, built. In Second Chronicles 7:1, uh, God sent a fire from heaven, consuming the burnt offerings and sacrifices of the dedication of the temple. Leviticus 9:24 earlier with with Moses, fire came from the Lord to consume the burnt offering and the and the fat upon the altar. So this is not something new that is just generated by uh, by Elijah. He's able to set up the contest because he's basically using the faith rest drill. He knows what, what the issues are. And the issues then aren't any different from the way they are today. And we covered these details. I've reviewed them for some of you who weren't here last time. We covered this last time. But the question we need to be addressing is, okay, in light of this very real, very historical event that's just as real as if it happened yesterday, just as real as if you had seen it on Fox News this morning, just because it was some uh, 3,000 or 2,800, 2,900 years ago, doesn't mean it's not as real. Some of you think that, but a lot of people think that, but it's not. So last time I said, well, we have to think about this, is this conflict of thought that's occurring between the divine viewpoint biblical thought that is what gives Elijah his courage, his strength, his power, versus all of these syncretists. It's the same battle you face in your soul every single day, challenging the 
pagan human viewpoint garbage that you've sucked up from the world around you. It's the same battle we face when we deal with family members or friends or uh, others in our culture. They are just like the priests of Baal, more ways than they can possibly imagine. So last time I got us thinking a little bit about the basic elements of a religion, philosophy, worldview, or approach to life. And I'm just going to run through these fast so that we're reminded because we've had many other things going on this morning, so I don't want to keep us here until 2 o'clock this afternoon, although I easily could. Uh, number one, everyone has a philosophy of life. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you are a, a peasant, illegal, uh, immigrant farmer. You have a philosophy of life. Part of that included committing a crime to get across the uh, Rio Grande or the border in order to get into uh, the United States so that you could make a living. You justified that as being, uh, being valid. Uh, everyone has a philosophy of life, from the president down to the poorest street person, homeless person. Everyone has this philosophy of life. Some are conscious of it. Some are unconscious of it. Some have made it have a clear rationale for their beliefs. It's internally consistent, but most are not. Second, we saw that every worldview or religion contains universals. These are absolute principles that even when they say there are no absolutes, well, that's an absolute, isn't it? So they have their absolutes. These are betrayed by any time they say, well, you shouldn't be driving those gasoline engine cars. That contributes to global warming. They've just betrayed an absolute that it is wrong to do damage to the environment in that way. It's wrong for man to have this kind of technological advance. That is consistent with their nature worship. They're just like the uh, those who worship Baal, just as much in nature worship then as now. So these words like should, ought, right, and wrong are uh, betray their, their whole view of life and their view of God, uh, ethics, values, everything else. Third, that's the entry point then to a worldview is by observing their rights and wrongs, their shoulds and their ought-nots. Uh, fourth, we've seen that ethical principles then, which then become the basis for laws and regulations and cap and tax codes and health care bills and all of these other things, when it becomes legislated, that reflects a value. That reflects an ethical system. That ethical system, in turn, is going to say something about their ultimate view of reality, and that takes us to an understanding an understanding of God. So these ethical principles are, are based on prior assumptions about the nature of truth or knowledge and the ultimate nature of the universe. So what we have... Actually, they got those in backwards. The elements of a basic religion... Our philosophy, worldview, or approach to life includes three things, a view of God, a view of man, and a view of creation. Always think about that. Whenever you hear somebody talking about something, when you hear that politician start talking about why we need this new health care bill, or when you hear a politician talking about, uh, I think the new politically correct term is climate change, global warming, when you hear them talking about education, when you even hear them talking about things related to uh, the border, you have to always go back and say, what underlies this? What are they not talking about here that has to do with their view of creation, their view of man, and ultimately their view of God? See, that's where we start. We start with the here and now, and we work back to God. But the biblical approach is to always start with God and unpack God, unpack everything that that the Scripture says about the attributes of God and his purposes and plan, and then that then informs us to who man is, what his limitations are, what his problems are, and then that in turn takes us to creation. Because biblically, man is not part of nature. See, that's what the whole global warming bill, that, that assumes that man and is part of nature. But that's not what the Bible says. That's why they despise the Bible and Christians. Because the Bible says that man is over nature. That man was set over the 
birds of the air and the beasts of the field and fish of the sea. He was to use them responsibly, but he, they, they, he is to rule over them. That is, you just say that to Al Gore sometime and watch him bust a blood vessel. Man, they hate that. They hate that, and I'll show you why a little bit, because there is always this battle going on between the Bible and human viewpoints. So as Christians, we have to think in terms of what the Bible says and not in terms of what you know, man likes or man thinks or, or uh, man's opinion. So what are these things saying about God? What are these things saying about man? What are these things saying about uh, creation? So what we have to do here, and this is going to take more time than we have this morning, but the first question we have to carefully think about, this is not the kind of message you're going to get in your average church on a Sunday morning, because we know that we have to think, and we have to think about the details of life biblically. The All these Israelites that are up there on Mount Carmel are not thinking about their lives biblically, and that's why they're in the mess they're in. Same thing today. First of all, we need to ask, answer the question, how does the challenge of Mount Carmel enable us to think biblically about our relationship to God, man, and creation? Creation I prefer to use as a divine viewpoint category. Nature, really more of a human viewpoint category. Okay? So I'm going to nuance things that, that way. Second thing we need to address, a question we need to address is what forms has the human viewpoint system uh, taken today to shape the thinking of our culture? What forms has the human viewpoint system shaped the thinking of our culture? How is the culture around us in 21st century America shaped by what human viewpoint ideas and concepts? And third, how much of that's in your soul? How much of that have you taken in from your liberal parents or from your liberal professors or from your elementary school teacher who just didn't know better or how much of that have you taken in from the people at work and the friends and how much of that have you had to gradually slowly compromise over in your job because most corporations and businesses in America have been uh, subtly and, and, uh, and, and carefully pressured to conform to politically correct ideas because if they don't, there's all kinds of penalties that are out there for their failure to do certain things. And if you work for those corporations, then you've been pressured to think about the role and relationship of men and women to each other in a non-biblical way. And if you think about it biblically, then human resources is going to fire you in a heartbeat because you are some sort of antediluvian, Neanderthal, racist, hate-monger who is uh, just one of those radical right-wing uh, Christian evangelicals. And you don't even know that you've done that. So how much of this is in your soul? Well, one thing that we see in human viewpoint that goes back to probably the garden, but it really got developed by the Greeks a lot, is something called the great chain of being. Now, I'm not going to go into this in depth, so you can relax just a little bit. But this really got, got developed or systematized by, by Aristotle. And what he basically said was that uh, this chain of being is a, a continuity of being from top to bottom, and uh, it includes everything in the universe. So we could say, as a definition, it's a hierarchy of static, unchanging forms with God, who is being itself, sometimes called the unmoved mover, the good, the absolute, other terms are used. God, lowercase g, it should be. Uh, God's at the top, then angels, humans, animals, plants, down to inanimate objects like the climate. It's all part of the same chain of being. There's really no difference in kind there. It's just a difference in degree. And this movement in the ancient world was from top to bottom, but in the modern world, the modern form, it's from bottom to top. So I've got a little diagram here for you. Uh, This is the chain of being emanating from God. The triangle there represents 
uh, all of existence, just being itself or raw existence. And we start at the top with God, and God uh, is in the box. Notice. Is that biblical? Uh-uh. No, he's part of everything else. Uh, that's the, how the ancient gods and goddesses were. They're part of creation. They're part of nature, rather. They are part of this whole chain of being so that their being is not qualitatively different from our being. He, he, God just is a man, you know, blown up big like some blow-up doll, and you just huff and puff with all your intellectual might, and you blow up this God doll, which just looks like Superman. But he's not qualitatively different. And then you have angelic beings or spirit beings that are out there, depending on whether you're an animist or whatever. You have these angels out there. Then we have man under that. Uh, then animals, vegetation, uh, rocks, dirt, water. You have Mother Earth and Father Sky and uh, Uncle Oxygen and <laughs> Aunt Seawater and Cousin Bear. And we're all together. So we can't do anything to hurt them because then it hurts everything else. We can't run that risk. It's worse than a nuclear disaster. Trust me. That's why they're so scared of Christianity. And then we have astronomical and geophysical environment. That includes the climate and climate change. See, what you say about the climate, how you interpret the data that you get, is going to be determined a lot by the glasses you put on. And if you put on those Darwinistic, naturalistic glasses, then you're going to look at the data differently than if you put on your Old Testament and New Testament glasses. But the problem is we've got a lot of people who are regenerate, redeemed Christians, and because they've been at these you know, pious platitude churches that are so shallow, because you can't, trust me, folks, you can't learn anything by coming up to Bible class on Sunday morning once a week. You think you're going to overturn, uh, you know, 10,000, 100,000 hours of human viewpoint brainwashing from the public school system and the television and everything else and 45 minutes, 50 minutes once a week? Boy, talk about self-deception. Gee, and we need to be here a lot more than we're here. That's why we have things on the meet, on the uh, on the internet, so people can constantly go over this again and again. Yet we have to, in, in the Christian life, you have to learn to rethink everything. Your view, if you're a Christian thinking biblically, your view of an oak tree is not the same view that uh, Charles Darwin had of an oak tree. See, his view of an oak tree was it just something that just happened by pure chance. But your view of an oak tree is that every part of that was intentionally, consciously made by God. And it's going to interact with all everything else in creation the way God designed it. So you're not talking about the same oak tree. Not at all. You may think you do because you can come up with ten points of similarity, but that's not the critical thing. The critical thing is, is it created. So when you look at climate, climate change, climate change data, You've got to really take some time with this because it fits within a whole matrix of, of uh, what's called deep ecology, deep environmentalism today, which has a very interesting, fascinating background. So we get climate change bills. These things are going to have all kinds of, kinds of uh, unintended consequences. Well, let's just have, I've got a couple of quotes up here just to show that I'm not making this chain of being thing up. Russ's John Rushdoon, he's a well-known post-millennialist, but he was a good thinker in a lot of other areas, said that apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being, that is just existence itself, has been that being is one and continuous. God or the gods, man and the universe are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist so that a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. The creation of any new aspect of being is thus not a creation out of nothing, which is what the Bible teaches, but a creation out of being. 
Now, this came out of Greek thought, had a big impact in the Middle Ages, where it was further development. Huge tension occurred in, in, in your philosophers and theologians from um, Abelard to Aquinas all the way up, and it impacted and still affects even Protestant thought today. Arthur Lovejoy has written a, about the only book I know on the subject called The Great Chain of Being. He's not a believer at all. He's a, his field is a history of ideas, and he said the essential and unbreakable links. Notice that, essential and unbreakable. You do something to break those links in that chain of being, it's going to cause the whole universe to collapse. And you're doing it because you're running one of those gasoline-powered engines, and you're using hydro, putting hydrofluorocarbons in the atmosphere when you use that aerosol spray. And back in the day when you could really have a good air conditioner, you put Freon in there, and if that Freon escaped, it could, everything could collapse. See, there's no God of the universe who controls the details of the universe. There's no Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, who holds everything together. So they run scared. So uh, Lovejoy said the essential and unbreakable links in the chain include the divine creator. He's not much of a creator if he didn't create being, is he? The divine creator, the angelic, uh, heavenly beings, the human, the animal, the world of plants and vegetables, and the planet Earth itself with its minerals and waters. The image became the basis for calling anything and everything sacred. He also said the scale of being was thus an important social concept that was used to justify many types of social inequality. There is an inherent and consistent totalitarianism that is embedded within the thought of the scale of being. We're going to keep everybody in their place. We can't have all, we can't really have democracy. We'll just use the word. But we have our elites and we have those who are in control and those who understand this are the ones who have to control things or it'll all fall apart. Alexander Pope wrote in his essay on man, just to show you this, how this impacts so much, vast chain of being which from God began, nature's ethereal human angel man, beast, bird, fish, insect, what no one can see, no glass can reach from infinite to thee. The being great chain of being. No, uh, were we to press inferior might on our or in the full creation leave a void where one step broken, the great scale destroyed from nature's chain, whatever link you strike tenth or ten thousandth breaks the chain alike. If you do that through breaking the, what scientists say is the environment, any of these environmental absolutes, we're in serious trouble. But see, this is connected to some other incredible thought. Over 150 years ago, Arthur Schopenhauer, early 19th century German philosopher, said, we owe the animals, because they're in the same chain of being, not mercy, but justice. He didn't say that today. He's not a member of PETA. He said this over 150 years ago. We owe the animals not mercy but justice, and the debt often remains unpaid in Europe, the continent that is permeated with. See, feeder Judaicus was his word. It's Italian word. It's a Latin word to hide the meaning. Feeder Judaica means the stench of Judaism. See, his anti-Semitism. It's obviously high time in Europe that Jewish views on nature. What's the Jewish view on nature? Ought to be your view on nature. God created man to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field. That's the enemy. He said it over 150 years ago. It's obviously high time in Europe that Jewish views on nature were brought to an end. The unconscionable treatment of the animal world must, on account of its immorality, be expelled from Europe. We have to, uh, and we have people today, people even who have been appointed to uh, high positions in the current administration who believe that killing of an animal is equal to the killing of a human being. Cal Beisner has written a book called From the Garden to the Wilderness. He's a Christian writer. He's a meteorologist. 
And he goes through the history of all of this, saying that in the 19th century, due to the influence of people like like uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, John Audubon, who founded the Audubon Society, Sierra Club founder John Muir and others, their emphasis was on conservation. The emphasis was on using nature, but conserving it so there would be uh, energy things for future generations. That's good. That's very close to the biblical view of the responsible use of creation under the authority of man. But by the late 19th century and early 20th century, things began to change. In the early 20th century, the idea was primarily still to conserve the things we consume. But conservationism began to transform into environmentalism in the second quarter of the 20th century, from 1925 to 1950, particularly under a man named Aldo Leupold, whose dates were 1887 to 1948. He was a wildlife natural specialist, one of the founders of the Wilderness Society, and he began to teach that within nature there's this complex biological relationship that affects everybody, including man. We're all in that circle. And he began to uh, espouse not, not so much the view of conservation but preservation. And the enemy to preservation, of course, is man. And his, his views were, his views repudiated conservationism because it was anthropocentric. It's man-centered. He's anti-human. All these environmentalists are. It's anti-human, anti-technology. Instead, he embraced a biocentric or ecocentric view that dominates organizations like Greenpeace and Earth First and others of these groups who really hate humanity and progress and technology. And then we have the influence of a Norwegian named Arne Nass, who came along in the 70s and 80s. And what he did, here's a quote at, um, what he did basically was to uh, merge these with other ideas. Cal Beissner writes, this view, which came to dominate radical environmentalism or deep ecology, as it's called. This view, is domin- this view dominates in Greenpeace, Earth First, emphasizing everything not of human origin as having intrinsic value. You don't have intrinsic value. But that snail darter out there does, and that spotted owl does, but you don't. They hate us, except for them and their families. Um, so what he does is he comes along, this perspective had, the uh, quote says, this perspective has become particularly strong what is now known as deep ecology, rooted in the philosophy of Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, which integrates the thinking of feminism, new age mysticism, and neo-pagan environmentalism. And that's all come together. It really came together in the 90s, and it's almost gone mainstream. I mean, when you've got major corporations like ExxonMobil, Walmart, uh, school districts, just watch your commercials. Everybody's accepted the premises of nature worship and environmentalism. But it leads somewhere. It leads someone somewhere terrible. And this is where it leads. This is a quote from Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolutionary theory, which is just a rehash of Aristotle, who's a rehash of Nimrod and Satan. Darwin wrote, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man Let's interpret that. White people. He was a racist to the bone. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Wonder who they might be. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between, that's this between man and whatever seems close to being man. This break is going to get wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state. Neo-statist liberal. Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, between man and a more civilized state, as we may hope, even then the Caucasian 
and some ape as low as a baboon instead of is now between the Negro or the Australian and the gorilla. Did you catch that? you understand the horrific racism that's there? Well, see, it's these social implications that were embedded in the philosophy of the National Socialist Party of Adolf Hitler in Germany in the 1820s and 1830s, and you may not know this, but they had an a impressive environmentalist ecological program because they were tied to the Mother Earth. And this was all tied in together. And you couldn't escape the implications of it. And you see the dominant view we're getting today from Washington is National Socialism. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're Nazis. But socialism is socialism. and national It's the same tyranny of paganism. Now, Romans warns us that the wrath of God is revealed against hev- from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And men suppress the truth. They hate God, and they're worshiping the creation rather than uh, the creature. And in Romans 1.25, we read that they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshiped the Baals and the Asherah and all of this because they don't understand something simple. The problem that we have, the problem that we have with nature, and there is a problem, isn't because of the industrial revolution. It isn't because of hydrocarbons or gasoline or any of these things. It's because of God. God did it, not man. God cursed the ground. Genesis 3.14, you see the curse on the animals. The serpent is cursed more than the cattle. And then in verse 17 and 19, we read that that the, the expression of the curse toward Adam is at the end there. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Uh, and from toil you will eat of it, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of the face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. See, the ground is cursed. But there's going to be a, a real redemption, and that's indicated in the ministry of Jesus. In the prophecy of the millennial kingdom in Isaiah 11:6 through 9, we read that this curse is reversed, not by the environmentalists or the politicians, but when Jesus Christ returns, and not till then, then the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. The little child shall lead them. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's den. What, what produces the change? The change is produced because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. That laid the foundation. When he returns, he can work out the results of that redemption upon creation. Romans eight nineteen to 22 says that the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, not man, not Ford, not Chevy, not Olds, not Al Gore, For the creation was subject to futility because of him who subjected it in hope, because he wanted to redeem it eventually and change it, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know now that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. But, verse 23, not only that, but we also... We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for this adoption, the redemption of the body. See, that's our hope. The only hope is Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that's it. It's not politics. It's not cap and tax. It's not health care bills. It's not science and technology. It's not reason. It's not mysticism. It is the Word of God and understanding the plan of God, and that's the only basis for salvation of our souls and salvation of and the redemption of nature. That's the solution. But it's always going to be a problem. It was a problem for Elijah and the priests of Baal and their nature worship, and it's a problem for us and the priests of Darwin and their nature worship. Same thing. Little details change, but the solution hasn't changed. It's still God. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be refreshed by knowing that there is a real solution, and that is 
because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's without hope, without understanding, uncertain, confused about their eternal destiny, that they would understand that you loved them in such a way that you gave your unique Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if they trust in Jesus Christ, they will have eternal salvation. It begins now and it will culminate in the future. Jesus will return. He will return for us at the rapture where we have our resurrection body and he will return to the earth where he will roll back the curse when he comes to establish his kingdom. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and realize that the Bible addresses how we think today, not just something in the distant past, but it takes time, energy, effort, and dedication to make the doctrines of your word part of our soul and part of our thinking, and that we need to come to understand that and make that the priority of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.